You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In these trying times, you have to slog through a tsunami of information every day, whether it's mail flooding your inbox, text scrolling on your screen, or the pronouncements of TV pundits. Much of this information is straightforward and truthful, but some of it is what we used to politely call hogwash, and it's getting harder to tell the difference. We have all been dealing with sort of qualitative verbal BS for a very long time. We know how to detect it. We understand weasel words from a corporate spokesperson or false promises from a politician. I want you to use my words against me. Our press secretary gave alternative facts to that. That's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. We're reasonably good, not as good as I'd like, but we're reasonably good at picking that stuff up. As the world is becoming more quantitative and as data is becoming absolutely fundamental in the decisions we make and in the way we present information to the public and the media, we're seeing more and more BS taking on this form of statistics and results from computer algorithms, things like that, numbers, facts, figures, data graphics. The death rate was found to be just 0.37%. That's a fraction of the official numbers, barely one-seventh of it. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't, you can't do that. You know, seasonal influenza vaccine is 40 to 60% effective. It's not 100% effective. We're not trained and we don't have the experience in picking up misinformation there. The numbers intimidate us. They feel like they're coming straight from nature. They feel like they're objective. We're facing a new school type of deception, cloaked in the language of math, science, and statistics. Can you spot it? Well, we have tips that can help. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, as we try to sort out fact from fiction during a contentious political campaign amidst a pandemic and in the presence of a relentless and convoluted online environment, well, it's getting trickier to do, but it's not impossible. Here's how to keep an eyebrow raised. It's our regular look at critical thinking. This one, skeptic check, stay skeptical. Whether you call it hooey, codswallop, or malarkey, misinformation is not what it used to be. In fact, one scientist is calling it exactly what it is. He is so willing to name it plainly that we can't say the full title of his book on the air. The ears of our podcast listeners, however, will not be spared. His book, co-authored with a colleague, is, and I'll tone it down a bit here, Calling B.S., The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. The author reads from the opening pages. The world is awash with bullshit, and we're drowning in it. Politicians are unconstrained by facts. Science is conducted by press release. Silicon Valley startups elevate bullshit to high art. Colleges and universities reward bullshit over analytic thought. The majority of administrative activity seems to be a little more than a sophisticated exercise in the combinatorial reassembly of bullshit. Advertisers wink conspiratorially and invite us to join them in seeing through all the bullshit. We wink back. 
but in doing so, drop our guard and fall for the second order bullshit they're shoveling at us. Bullshit pollutes our world by misleading people about specific issues, and it undermines our ability to trust information in general. However modest, this book is our attempt to fight back. I'm Carl Bergstrom. I'm a professor of biology at the University of Washington in Seattle. What would compel a biologist, and Dr. Bergstrom is an evolutionary biologist, to write a book about data manipulation? Well, as a scientist, he studies how epidemics spread through populations and how living organisms share information. In fact, there's even a term for what he studies, infodemic, which Wikipedia defines as a blend of information, an epidemic that typically refers to a rapid and far-reaching spread of both accurate and inaccurate information. And we know that bad information can spread like a virus. But as a way of easing into to talk about how humans can be manipulative, hogwash peddling, malarkey pitching, traffickers of hucksterism, we console ourselves by noting that we're not the only animals that are prone to deception. The natural world is awash in duplicity. In fact, Dr. Bergstrom singles out one animal for being such an accomplished bluffer it might do well at the tables in Vegas. Oh, my favorite are ravens. I'm a huge fan of corvids in general, ravens, crows, jays, magpies, and ravens are so clever. Ravens tend to uh, cache their food. They tend to have large food supplies, and when you know they, they'll come across a carcass or something like that that they can't eat all at once, and so they cache their food. But the problem is, is that they watch one another and watch where one another cache things and steal one another's caches. So ravens have developed this very sophisticated way of fake caching. They hold food in their crop, they pretend to uh, cache, and then uh, leave a set of decoy caches all around where they'll you know, pretend they're putting something into the ground, they'll maybe cover it over with moss, but there'll be nothing there to try to fool the other birds. Well, it sounds to me like these ravens have a kind of a theory of mind, I guess it's called, where they can kind of imagine what, what other ravens are seeing and how they're interpreting that information. They're, you know, in order to fool these other ravens, they sort of have to know what the other ravens are thinking, don't they? Absolutely. There was an uh, experiment that we talk about in the book that demonstrated that and actually demonstrates sort of a more sophisticated theory of mind than we see even with uh, non-human primates. Uh, what the ravens are able to do is uh, if you have a little box that sometimes contains a raven and the box has a peephole in it, uh, the ravens will treat the situation as if they're being watched, even though they can't see the watcher. If you close the peephole, then they're able to figure out, oh, nobody's watching me. The peephole's closed, so I don't need to fake cash. It's really a remarkable thing, and, uh, and it is a theory of mind, and I think that's a really important aspect to sort of taking deception to the next level. That's why I brought up ravens in the first place, is because they seem to be able to understand what other birds perceive and understand how to manipulate those perceptions. Sounds to me like a bird brain shouldn't be a pejorative. I mean, Absolutely not. So the, the point is that no matter what you call it, bluffing or deception or BS, this is a kind of behavior that we have evolved to be able to do. So that suggests it has, you know, survival value. Yes, absolutely. The thing about communication is that it allows us to manipulate other people's behavior or other animals' behavior if you're a raven and trying to, trying to fool ravens or uh, whatever. Uh, it allows us to manipulate others' behavior in a non-physical way. If I want you to do something, I don't have to grab your arm and make you do it. I can tell you information that will uh, give you reason to think that you ought to do it. And then you'll go do it. Um, often we use that for good. We use that to communicate and to coordinate our behavior and to cooperate. But of course, if I listen to your words and respond accordingly, that gives you sort of a handle over my behavior. And you can use that to your own devices if you want to by giving me misinformation and getting me to do things that are good for you, but not so good for me. Well, okay. All right. Well, your book is called Calling Bullshit. And while some people may object to the profanity, you've deliberately used this word, even knowing that it may put some, some book buyers off. You're using it for a reason, that's for sure. What's the difference between BS and just lying, telling untruths? Remarkably, this has become a sort of serious issue in philosophy. And uh, there's, a, there's a book that goes back um, a few years by Harry Frankfurt. It, it originally was published in a 1986 essay 
where he tries to lay out the difference between BS and lies. And Frankfurt's idea is that uh, a liar knows the truth and is trying to lead you in the opposite direction, whereas a bullshitter doesn't know the truth or doesn't care and just wants to say something that is persuasive or makes you think that they're smart or whatever. We have our own definition of that. In the book, we really stress the ways that, that numbers are misused to try to, uh, to try to BS people. And so you know, we, define, um, we define BS as language, statistical figures, data graphics, and other forms of presentation that are intended to persuade by impressing and overwhelming a reader or listener with a blatant regard for truth and logical coherence. So the idea is that I'm trying to throw all these numbers at you, for example, to make you think I know what I'm talking about or to you know, leave you sufficiently intimidated by the quantitative volume of information that I'm, that I'm presenting that you don't challenge my claims. If I do that with a blatant disregard for truth, that's BS. You know, that reminds me of a, an axiom that was uh, told to us in grad school, as I recall, that every time you have an equation in your presentation, you're given a colloquium to some people at another university. Every time you put up an equation, you lose 10% of the audience. So after, uh, you know, 10 or 20 equations, you've lost everybody. And at that point, they may just believe you because it's simpler to do. I mean, there is there are certainly elements of that. Um, you know, I think with with presentations, often what happens is with every equation, ten percent of the audience goes to sleep, so no one ends up believing anything. But uh, but but in any case, um, if I throw data graphics at you or or kind of you know high powered statistical methods, then you may just decide, yeah, it's easier to believe this guy than to try to challenge him. Yeah, but it, this sounds like it's a new phenomenon because, you know, not so long ago, the way you persuaded people was by the strength of your argument. You might have joined the debating society at school or whatever, right? But now uh, it seems that mathematics is the weapon of choice. Well, we do distinguish in the book between what we call, you know, old school BS, which is the sophistry that you would have learned in, in, uh, in debating society or, uh, or a new school BS, which comes, you know, in wrapped up in the trappings of, of quantitative analysis. And I do think we have very much shifted in that direction. The presence of data graphics in news media and in popular books and everything else is enormous compared to what we saw even 20 years ago. And a lot of that is because we live in a world that is now so quantified. We live in a world where uh, we all carry around these tracking devices in our pockets that, that generate enormous amounts of information about us. The tech companies know what we want to buy, you know, where we want to go, who we want to go there with. We got all this information. And so that's really become a currency for both uh, decision making and for persuasion. Well, Carl, maybe you could give a contemporary example in which uh, mathematics or statistics in general are being used to bamboozle the audience. I think we're seeing a lot of that kind of information and misinformation around uh, the COVID pandemic itself. So just to pick one example, um, fairly early in the pandemic, there were a couple of doctors in Bakersfield, California, who wanted to try to estimate the uh, prevalence of COVID in California. And the reason they wanted to do that was because that would give them a handle on what the what the mortality rate was. They knew how many deaths there were approximately, but they didn't really know how many cases there were. So if you could figure out how many cases, then you can figure out the mortality rate. What they ended up doing was sampling the patients that came to their urgent care clinics. And this was in the month of April, I believe, um, March or April. Uh, so they were sampling the patients that were coming to these clinics you know, during the sort of first peak of the pandemic. And what they found was that about you know, a little bit over 6% of the patients that were coming into their clinics actually had COVID. If that had been the case, and then you do some modeling and some statistical analysis and everything else, you know, then they predicted that, well, because of that, 12% of people in California had already had COVID. Not that many had died, they claimed. And so it was actually less dangerous than the flu. That's completely false. Uh, well, the mistake that they made was assuming that the people coming to their clinics were a random sample of people in California, whereas the main reason you go to a clinic in the middle of a pandemic is either you've had some kind of 
of traumatic injury that has to be dealt with immediately, or you think you've got the disease that's causing the pandemic. So you had much, much higher rates of COVID in the population that they were sampling. This is called selection bias. We spend a chapter talking about it in the book. And the point is, is that they did a bunch of statistics and they had all the numbers and it made it look persuasive, but there was a fundamental logical flaw in the argument that was put forward. Is that very common where the basis for the argument, it, it's not that the math is wrong. It's not that they've added up numbers in e- incorrectly or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's just that the fundamental assumptions are wrong. I mean, they had too small a sample size or the, the experiment was biased or something like that. I'm so glad you asked that. That's kind of the premise of the book, uh, because the book is all about empowering people to be able to spot this stuff themselves without having a master's degree in statistics or in data science or whatever else. And our contention is that you absolutely can spot it because of what you just pointed out. The mistake is almost never in the math. It's almost never an artifact of some kind of technical detail of the analysis. It's almost always either that people take inappropriate data and put that into their mathematical analysis, or they get some result out of the mathematical analysis, and then they draw an unfounded conclusion. So to give you an example of that, uh, people might, you know, there was a study a year ago, pre-COVID, you know, where it was a meta-analysis that looked at a large set of previous studies, and, and it concluded that there was an association between exercising and not getting cancer. And so the study itself was very careful about saying, look, we're not saying that exercise prevents cancer. We don't have the information that we need to say that. But every single news headline that you read uh, was along the lines of exercise prevents cancer. Want to avoid cancer? Run four times a week uh, and all of this kind of stuff. You can spot that right away by just, you don't have to think about the fancy analysis that was in this paper. You could just Think of many other reasons why you might get an association like that. It might be that uh, people with uh, other conditions that make exercise unlikely or difficult are also more prone to suffer from cancer. Um, you know, perhaps uh, obesity or heart disease or uh, or smoking or any other number of uh, reasons that uh, you might choose not to exercise might also predispose you to cancer. And so there may be no causal link at all. If there's no causal link at all, then the advice, hey, exercise four times a week to avoid cancer is not good advice because it doesn't work like that. Carl Bergstrom is an evolutionary biologist, and we'll hear more from him later in the show about how not to be fooled by data manipulation. Well, it's not easy to focus on the task of separating the pseudo from the science as the relentless siren call of online advertisers beckon us to a rocky shore. Some of the ads just kind of feel like offensive, like they're using like sexualized imagery or things like that to try to catch people's eyeballs. How can you tell if the ads you're seeing online are legit? It's our regular look at critical thinking, skeptic check. This one, stay skeptical on Big Picture Science. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We take a break from our discussion of deception to bring you this commercial message. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. Doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Now, how do we know that that's a real ad? Of course, all advertising has the goal of trying to convince you to buy something, But there are sales pitches for legitimate products or services, and then there are ads for snake oil. 
online advertisements can be even more confusing because sometimes they may masquerade as other things. I mean, they might look like news articles or, or polls, or they might lurk behind a sensational photo. Well, clickbait all. Okay, so let me get this straight. On top of trying to sort out real news from misinformation, and we will talk more to Carl Bergstrom about that, we also have to sort out real advertising from deceptive advertising? Yeah, of course we do. <laughs> I don't know about you, Seth, but I'm ready to get off the internet altogether. Yeah, I, I, somehow I doubt that, Molly. <laughs> as soon as I Google going off the grid. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to your postcard and you can tell us how that's going. No, most of us are stuck making our way through the online jungle. And now that we're in election season, political ads are ramping up. And so are the tricks. A team of computer scientists at the University of Washington recently examined ad culture by looking at advertising on mainstream news sites, but also on misinformation sites. Now, you would think that legitimate news sites would prohibit misleading advertisements. You would think. I'm Francie Rosner. I'm an associate professor of computer science and engineering in the Paul G. Allen School at the University of Washington. I'm Eric Zhang. I'm a PhD candidate in the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science Engineering at the University of Washington. The scientists described their study during which they looked at 50,000 ads from both mainstream and misinformation sites. They also described the difference between what are called banner ads and native ads, and they tell us which ads are problematic. Traditionally, when we think about online advertisements on websites, we're talking about what are called display or banner ads. And so you'll commonly see these at the top of a web page, maybe along the sides or maybe at the bottom. And it's basically a rectangular box where advertisers can put an image or maybe an animated video or something that they've designed in that spot. And so this type of advertisement has been around for decades. What we've looked at in our study that is relatively new are what are called native ads. And so these are ads that are not these separate boxes, but they try to look like they are part of the website. And so, for example, if you look at a news site, a native ad would look like a recommendation for a news article. It might be an ad selling a product like a phone, but instead of saying, here's the phone we're trying to sell, it might try to look like a news headlines, like people won't believe the features on this new smartphone. Whereas like if you were just running a display ad, a banner ad, you might say, this is the new smartphone, it's $300. Can I throw a couple of things that I saw today at the two of you, and you can tell me what kind of ad it is? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, so one of them is that um, scientists say, avoid this one food item to lose weight. And then there's a picture of a banana there. What is that? That is likely a native ad, if it is an ad, but it's written very much like a news article, right? So. It's actually very hard to tell. There's the formatting of the ad, but there's also the words that are used in the ad and the different techniques that we see there, like trying to lure you into clicking on something and promising you something exciting. And so we see these different techniques layered together. Okay. Then another one is when I went to the USA Today website, I was greeted with a big ad for the new Star Trek film. Right. So that'd be a standard banner ad. So it's not, it's not trying to disguise itself as like part of USA Today. It's just its own thing, right? Well, I'd like to talk about your study then and the conclusions from that. Uh, but first, just an overview. What makes an ad problematic? We come from the perspective of computer security and privacy. That's the field that we, we work in. And ads have been a topic of interest in that field and in our own work for quite some time, but from a slightly different perspective their ad exchanges making decisions about who is more likely to click on what ad to kind of maximize the ad revenue. So there's a lot of tracking of user browsing behaviors that's going on as part of this ecosystem that have been of interest to the computer security and privacy community for a while. The, the categories of problematic content we found sort of by looking at what other researchers, consumer protection agencies, and journalists have already dug up on ads. So. These range from things like advertorials, which are ads that when you click on them, they link to something that looks like an article, but are actually trying to sell you things. Or we saw some examples of potentially unwanted programs. So ads that try to push you to download things that you might not want on your computer, but they might, once they're installed, they might do things like they'll inject extra ads like into your browser. 
Well, Eric, why don't you introduce us to the study? Um, it sounds like you all did a deep dive into these ads and had to look at a lot of them. Can you give us an overview? We built a web crawler and we crawled over 55,000 ads from a data set of news sites and also misinformation spreading sites. And then we manually examined about 5,000 of these ads by looking at ads from the top 100 news sites and the top 100 misinformation sites in our in our data set. Well, why look at the ads that appear on those sites? I mean, wouldn't we assume that they would be deceptive? That's actually exactly why we looked at them. One of the hypotheses we actually went in with was that we might see different types of ads appearing on different sites. So one of the reasons we wanted to look at misinformation sites is that we might expect that we'd see particularly problematic ads on misinformation sites. Um, so sites that already have low quality content might have even more low quality ads that are manipulative or deceptive. Whereas we might expect on legitimate news sites to see high quality ads. And to our original question of like whether problematic ads appear more on misinformation sites versus news sites, we actually found that there wasn't uh, a big difference. It suggests to us that misinformation sites and news sites are kind of partaking in the same advertising ecosystem. Do you mean that legitimate news sites and these misinformation sites are employing some of the same techniques or they actually have some of the same ads? They use some of the same ad providers and ad platforms, and even some of the same ads appear on both of these sites. And an ad platform is separate from the ad itself. I mean, there really is a, a vernacular here that we have to get used to, but the ad platform is the one that chooses the ads for the site, and then there's the ad itself. Is that right? That's right. So the news and misinformation sites basically use the same companies to to serve the ads on their page. So for example, Taboola is one of the ad platforms that served like a really high percentage of problematic ads. And we saw that there were a lot of ads from Taboola, both on legitimate news sites and misinformation sites. And maybe to highlight one of the reasons that I think it's concerning that we also see problematic or misleading or clickbait ads on the, the legitimate news sites is that those are sites that people are presumably trusting and going to for real information. And it concerns me that there is also content appearing on those sites that people might be trusting in the same way, even if not fully consciously, that has these problematic properties. Well, is there any evidence that um, these ads are influencing behavior or belief or that they're really a problem? Or is the concern that you have have to do with privacy? I think the concern is both. So in our current study, we, we don't know to what extent people are clicking on these ads or being tricked by them. But the fact that they're very common suggests that perhaps they work. But we're simultaneously concerned about the privacy aspects. We know that all ads really use this sort of tracking technology to understand who's clicking on them or who these ads might be relevant to. So I think it's a little of both. Now, Eric, I know that you had to look at a number of these ads, and I'm wondering what that experience was like. I mean, many people avoid the ads at all costs. You actually went toward them, which means you had to read them and, and, and experience their onslaught. And I remember reading about the experience of people who are assigned to pull down disturbing content on Twitter and Facebook. And after a time, it becomes a traumatic experience. Now, yours probably wasn't traumatic, but it probably also wasn't neutral to have to look at all these ads. Like, frankly, it was very unpleasant to look at all these ads. I think they are definitely not as bad as the worst things people post on social media. But there's just some like unpleasant images there. Some of the ads just kind of feel like offensive, like they're using like sexualized imagery or things like that to try to catch people's eyeballs. And a lot of them are just boring, and it's just, it's more mind-numbing than anything. Well, the bottom line, who benefits from these ads? That's actually, I think, uh, a more complicated question than it sounds like, uh, which makes it hard to address this problem. So who benefits from the ads is certainly the ad platforms who are in the business of, of selling these ads, um, the advertisers who are bringing people to whatever it is they're bringing people to. But also the websites that are hosting the ads benefit. That's how they monetize. And I think that's part of why uh, this is complicated, is that the ad ecosystem 
is fundamental to the economic model of the modern web. And so, you know, our goal with a study like this is not to say we shouldn't have advertising, but rather to say, you know, there is problematic content in this ad ecosystem that is bombarding people. I think Eric's experience looking at all of these ads kind of speaks to part of the concern here, which is that even if people are not directly believing misleading claims in these ads, it's part of this broader ecosystem of information that people are being bombarded with and consuming. And when they're trying to learn about the news of the world and make informed decisions, that legitimate information is surrounded by all of this other stuff. Yeah. So one thing I'd like to add to that is that for these deceptive ads, ads that might be scams, the incentives are especially pernicious because if these scammers are making money, if they're making good money off of running deceptive ads, that also means they can pay well to the websites that are running them and to the ad companies that are the middlemen. And so there's sort of a perverse incentive for some of these more clickbaity and deceptive ads to run because it pays out well compared to perhaps less successful ads. You know, as the two of you explain, the abundance of these ads coming at us from every part of these websites, my mind goes to mosquitoes of, of sitting outside on a summer day and just having to bat away the mosquitoes so that you can continue to enjoy your summer evening. But it, they, they never stop. They never let up. That is a really good analogy. Um, and then I guess the piece of advice is to really not see many of the ads is to install an ad blocker. So I guess that would be the mosquito net. <laughs> Well, that, I was going to ask as, as a final question, how much of this problem could be solved if we all installed ad blockers? So is that the answer here, at least one of the answers? Yeah. So installing ad blockers, you know, is a stopgap and it'll help, it'll help some, some of us see less ads, but it doesn't solve the whole problem because the business model, the revenue model of the internet really depends on websites being able to run ads. So what we can try to push for is for regulations or legislation or just changes to the policies by ad companies like Google so that the ads that people see are high quality and uh, won't be trying to deceive them and are less annoying and bothersome to people. Well, Eric Zhang and Franzi Rosner, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Francie Rosner is an associate professor at the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington. Eric Zeng is a graduate student at the school. Well, Seth, now that we finished the advertising portion of our episode and we continued the conversation about how content can sometimes deceive us, you know, I'm really struck by some of these old-fashioned words that we're using as euphemisms for BS. Um, one of them is hogwash. Where does the term hogwash come from? Yeah, that's the oldest of them because that dates to the Middle Ages when people were actually cooking, but there's always stuff left over. I don't know, rinds or things chopped off the ends of a piece of meat, and they would throw these scraps into a bucket, and sometimes they'd have stuff left over from brewing beer. They'd throw that in, and they would just toss that out into the streets, and any hogs wandering by would, uh, you know, find a meal. Okay, so it's it's leftovers, it's waste, um, it's not worth keeping, um, but apparently it's valuable for the hogs. And that hogwash, and you all know it's hogwash. Well, here's another one. What happened to you know who? Well, some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion. That's from Harry Potter. Codswallop. <laughs> what are the origins of codswallop? Yeah, well, nobody seems to know. The first reference to it that I could find was in a 1959 British TV series. And there is some etymology you could apply to it, you know, tied to some Greek words uh, suggesting a rather racy origin. But the bottom line here is it just started to get used and nobody really knows why. And what does it mean? It, well, it means nonsense or rubbish. Another one that we're hearing these days is malarkey. Where does malarkey come from? Yeah, you would think it comes from Ireland, but apparently it mostly comes from a guy who was a cartoonist around the turn of the 20th century, so uh, 19th and 20th century. And this guy, yeah, he was a cartoonist, but he, he invented all sorts of words and terms we still use. Including malarkey. 
With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. And why fact, is that so? Because not a single thing he said is accurate. Next, how to protect yourself from online deception couched in the language of science. They did a bunch of statistics and they had all the numbers and it made it look persuasive, but there was a fundamental logical flaw in the argument that was put forward. You don't need to be an expert to challenge numbers that look too good to be true. More from Carl Bergstrom on how to separate the pseudo from the science. It's Skeptic Check, Stay Skeptical on Big Picture Science. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The term infodemic refers to the rapid and broad spread of both accurate and inaccurate information. These days, infodemic often refers to the COVID pandemic. We're concerned about the levels of rumor and misinformation that are hampering the response. The head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyesus, told a gathering of foreign policy and security experts in the early days of the pandemic that health officials were waging a battle on two fronts. We're not just fighting an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. Fake news spreads faster and more easily than this virus and is just as dangerous. That's why we're also working with search and media companies like Facebook, Google, Pinterest, Tencent, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and others to counter the spread of rumors and misinformation. We call on all governments, companies, and news organizations to work with us to sound the appropriate level of alarm without fanning the flames of hysteria. Evolutionary biologist Carl Bergstrom, who studies both the spread of information and the movement of epidemics through populations, says that the spread of misleading COVID information has only gotten worse and it can be dangerous. Remember, his book about how to be skeptical while confronting a flood of scientific data has a title that we can't use on the air, but the title is basically Calling BS. Now, Dr. Bergstrom gives us tips for helping to identify it. The astronomer Carl Sagan can also help. He had a way for everyone to spot BS, only that the B he used was a reference to baloney, hold the S. Dr. Bergstrom says that Sagan's famous baloney detection kit is an old-school method that works just fine, even with new-school deception. Carl Sagan's uh, baloney detection kit essay is enormously important. It was an inspiration for us when working on this book. The same basic lessons still hold. So one of the things we did was repeated it. Uh, that's kind of useful every generation is to just repeat good advice. Uh, the other thing we did was we tried to really focus on the very data-rich world that we live in now, because Carl Sagan wrote this at a time when people weren't being presented with an onslaught of facts and figures and data graphics and statistical analyses and all of these other things. And so we tried to uh, show people how they don't have to be intimidated by that kind of information and how the same kind of clear logical thinking that Carl Sagan appealed to in the baloney detection kit essay uh, works also to deal with the sort of quantitative misinformation that we're dealing with now. One of the things that he suggested, if you're on the hunt for baloney, was to inquire about the source. Is it a reputable source? Right. And, you know, we see that today. The people like uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci are considered trustworthy and, 
you know, other medical types are maybe not so trustworthy. But, you know, this is kind of an argument from authority. If the person who's telling me something has credentials, if they have a bunch of sheepskins on the wall, then I'll believe them. And that sounds natural to me, something that's hardwired. We follow the leader kind of thing. But how can you fight that if somebody's telling you something and they have credentials of some sort? I think one way to start there is to expand the question a little bit into a trio of questions that any reporter would ask. You say, um, who's telling me this? Number one. Two, how do they know it? And uh, number three, what are they trying to sell me? Because everyone's trying to sell you something, maybe just an idea and not a product. But if you ask those three questions, that can help you figure out where someone is coming from. I also think we have to triangulate more and more in this world. If you have one expert or person with credentials anyway, who's making particular claim, and then you have you know dozens or hundreds or thousands making a different claim, you have to keep that in mind. You can find somebody with a PhD who will uh, deny the human influence in climate change. But if you go and you start asking a lot of people with PhDs in climate science, you'll see an overwhelming consensus uh, that climate change is a result of human activity. Okay, but that's a decision based on, if you will, a vote. And, and most people are not going to be able to recognize BS on the basis of a vote because they don't know the people they should ask for their opinion, and they couldn't ask enough of them anyhow. So uh, at that point, what do you do? Do you just talk to your relatives? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. And and thank you for backing me into that corner because it's <laughs> important to explain how to get out. Um, it's, uh, so what I've been talking about with COVID in particular is that this is a place where high quality traditional media are exceptionally important. Don't believe Uncle Rob when he puts something on Facebook. What you want to do is you want to look at traditional media. And what you want to do in particular is develop an understanding of which reporters know what they're doing, know the people out there, can synthesize the information and give you solid, accurate advice about what's happening and what you need to do about it. So I have personal favorites like uh, Kai Cooper Schmidt and, and Helen Branswell. Uh, but I think here's a place where we absolutely need to rely on professional media that help parse very complicated information environments. So Carl, maybe you could give me an example of the most pernicious sort of BS that's uh, been making the rounds recently. Well, I think that COVID has really brought the role of misinformation to the fore. And we have seen a ton of misinformation around COVID. In January and in February, I was tracking misinformation from opponents of China, of the Chinese government. And they were uh, stories about how there was uh, elevated sulfur dioxide levels over uh, over Wuhan, which they were claiming was evidence that thousands of bodies were being incinerated. There were there was a story about cell phones gone missing, um, you know, 27 million cell phones or something that had disappeared from, you know, Chinese uh, cell phone uh, registries, and and so there were all of these attempts to make it look like there was a much greater catastrophe going on there than there really was. There was a really sharp change though when you ask about pernicious. Uh, sources of misinformation, where in late February, around the 25th or the 26th of February, the U.S. government got into the misinformation game in a big way. And we had the White House uh, in you know, multiple guises telling us that this pandemic was not a big deal. It was under control. It was going to go away and that we should keep going with our lives and not panic. And things weren't spreading in the United States. And a lot of us believed them. And we lost a month. Uh, or maybe six weeks because of that, that we could have used to prepare and to track the disease and to keep it down and to put the infrastructure in place that we needed. And we lost the opportunity to do any of that. You include in your book what's known as the Brandolini Principle. This term was coined by the Italian software engineer Alberto Brandolini, and it says something like the amount of energy required to refute BS is an order of magnitude greater than that was needed to produce it. I guess that's true, and it, it has implications. I think it is true. Uh, you know, he may have been off by an order of magnitude. It may be two orders of magnitude, more effort than, or three. Uh, but, it, but it's absolutely true. It's an old idea. You know, Jonathan Swift writes this, and he says, the, the falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. So this is something that we've 
been aware of for a very long time. I think on the internet, we're particularly susceptible to it because there's selection for information that's shocking or startling or emotionally engaging. And that's what gets spread. The whole notion of the way that social media is set up is to keep us engaged with the platforms. And I just, I talk about Twitter as being an almost optimally designed outrage engine to get you pissed off and to express that uh, in ways that'll piss other people off and and uh, and pull everybody in. I mean, even it's just like crows. I mean, even crows, two crows start to fight and all the others come down and they watch, right? And this is, this is what we do on Twitter. You know, you're on Twitter a lot, Carl. Have you ever tweeted something and, uh, you know, had to tweet remorse? <laughs> Have you done that? Oh, of course. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, um, it, it's a heated medium for one thing. So, you uh, you know, you, you get frustrated with people and you and you take it out. In uh, verbally and and so of course I've tweeted things that are that are not kind. I've tweeted things that are incorrect. Uh, I've been fooled by misinformation, and I've shared that. And in all of these cases, what I try to do, and it's the best thing I can do, is, that I can figure out to do anyway, is that on a medium like Twitter or Facebook where people can reshare content, the first thing to do is you need to actually eliminate the misleading content. So if I tweet something that I think is false or misleading and recognize that, I delete the tweet. But I also want to be transparent. So what I typically do is I also post something. I say, I've just deleted this tweet because and I explain why, but I think you have to delete the original because of Brandolini's principle that we talked about. Otherwise, you know, the original goes out, you post a correction, you know, 100,000 people see the original, 10,000 people see the correction. I think, Carl, for a lot of people, they're going to ask themselves, look, why do I need to bother about this? Okay, I know that I don't believe everything on my Twitter feed, and it's only going to take me, what, one or two orders of magnitude more effort to even try to refute this. Can you... Tell me why they should. Well, I think that, first of all, you can't go after every single wrong thing on the internet. Uh, nobody has the time, the patience, the energy, or anything. On the other hand, we live in a democracy, and the democracy that we live in relies on an informed populace. And we all have a role to play now that we are in a social media world in determining what other people know. This big change with social media is that we go from being uh, simply passive consumers of information that's coming to us to information creators, but also critically uh, the editors and producers that determine what our friends and family and neighbors are gonna see. And so I think we have an obligation to try to keep our information environment healthy so that our democracy can stay healthy. I can see the value. It's, you know, hard, hard not to see the value encountering something that's factually inaccurate that can cause, you know, obvious harm, like, I don't know, injecting yourself with bleach or something to treat a disease, for example, just a random one. But uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, I think studies have shown that you usually don't get very far with somebody who's belief system is on the side of whatever it is that they're telling you. If they, they're believing in creationism or UFOs, or it's a, something that I encounter quite frequently and so forth, and, and you try and counter with facts or logic or those dreaded statistics, that almost never seems to work. So finally, I would ask you, you know, you've written a book about this. What's the best strategy to cut the BS? Well, this is a very hard problem, first of all, and and we are in a world where we have these sort of you know this sort of tribal epistemology where truth is determined by whether or not it's good for our side uh, rather than by the facts. So that makes it very hard uh, in a hyperpolar you know hyperpolarized partisan environment, or you know if somebody's into UFOs or whatever it is to to cut through it. That said, I think that you can avoid spreading misinformation to people who are not in that camp that already believes those things. So on, on social media, Jevin West and I, my, my co-author, often say, uh, you know, think more, share less. Uh, we want everyone to, you know, you read something and say, oh my gosh, you know, that's, I can't believe that. That's BS. I'm going to share that. And then uh, slow down. Think about it. Is it true? Uh, who is telling you that? How do they know it? What are they trying to sell you? 
and then decide whether you're going to share that. So I think um, you know that's a that can be a really really uh, Im- important break on the on the problem. The other thing that I think is really critical is to try to have, find common ground uh, with with people that uh, that may believe different things than you do. So if you're talking to someone who is skeptical about the safety of vaccines, uh, instead of coming in and saying like, you're a stupid anti-science denier, hippie, whatever, back off and say, you know, look, uh, I'm really worried about my kids too. It's really hard to figure out what's the right thing to do for your children in this environment. And, And start the conversation there from a point of common ground. I realize that doesn't necessarily work when people are shouting at each other on Twitter. But if you're talking to friends and family, I think you can really make headway with that kind of approach. Carl Bergstrom, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was a delight. Thank you. Carl Bergstrom is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Washington and the author of, and I have to alter the title for the broadcast audience, Calling BS, The Art of Skepticism and a Data-Driven World. Well, Seth, the big picture here, of course, it's probably captured in the title, Stay Skeptical. Yeah, and one of the important points here that Carl Bergstrom makes is that today people will often use mathematics or or science or, or statistics to give more weight to their argument. Trust science, but verify the source of that science. Exactly. And don't make the mistake of thinking that just because an argument is made using a formula, right, that it's somehow a better argument, right? Even scientists know that. Thanks to the Take No BS artistry of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and intern Frida Cryer. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Special thanks to some of our Patreon Velociraptors, Rob from Worcester, Massachusetts. As well as Jamie M. and Umurikitsechen, Martijn. This episode of Big Picture Science is one of our regular looks at critical thinking. It's called Skeptic Check, Stay Skeptical. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive, and you'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.